And a very good afternoon to you. My name is Philip Klein. I am President Chief Executive Officer of Klein Investigations and Consulting. And you're listening to The Klein Files. All right, welcome uh, to us all at The Klein Files. Uh, I think we are live. It just bleeped off. So you might want to go down and see if we're still good to go. I think we are. I don't think we are. Okay. What's what's the issue? We are live. Yes, we are. We are live. Yep. Okay. And we just we there are. we go. Now we bleeped up again. This new Metis thing, folks, is just more of craziness. That's <laughs> I've never seen anything like this before. But we've uh, we just got installed on all of our accounts. This new Meta business. Facebook and it has confused us greatly. I'm here today with Caroline Klein sharing a microphone. Caroline Gear, FYI. Oh, I hope your husband doesn't listen to this. It could be a bad, <laughs> ugly thing. And special guest today in the inside the uh, war room here, we have Mr. Lou Zarius. Lou, welcome. Hi, folks. How are you? Now, let me explain to everyone a little bit about. Lou and um, uh, and where he comes from and, and the case that we're involved with on the Zaharias children. Um, and, and so, you know, I usually like to narrate it, but today I'm going to let Lou narrate it. Now, let me explain to you who Lou is. About, uh, Lou, what was it, about five, six years ago now? Uh, actually, longer, longer than, than that. that. Yeah, Closer seven, to eight. Eight, yeah. Uh, we received a phone call in the office and we had a distraught father on the phone. He said, look, I lost my children. I said, well, okay, you lost your children. He said, yeah, I, I lost my children about, I think he said like back then it was like 30 years ago. I said, what? 30 years ago, you've lost your children. What are you talking about? He says, 30 years ago, my ex-wife grabbed my children and she took off. And we haven't been able to find them. I said, who are you working with? And they said, Orange County, California, District Attorney's Office, Orange County Sheriff's Department, uh, you know, different agencies throughout the United States government. I said, well, you know, okay. Well, it sounds like you got a good team amassed. He said, no, I want you. I said, oh, no. Okay, let's talk about it. So I got on an airplane. I flew out to San Diego, California and went up north. Uh, beautiful country out there. However, I would never live there. I assure all of you, I would never live there. <laughs> um, and so I went and sat down with Lou at his house, and we talked, and we talked, and we talked, and we talked for a couple of days, didn't we, Lou? Yeah, definitely. And so I was not convinced after the first day that I could help. Now, remember my motto around here, folks, I don't take cases unless I, I think I can help. If I can't help, I'll get you to someone who will. Uh, there's other people that do my kind of work uh, out of Virginia. Uh, there's a little girl up there that does work. Uh, she's a nice lady, love her to death, uh, but she mostly works down in Iran and Iraq and down in Saudi and down in those areas. Then there's another guy, uh, DeBecker, out in California, and he has does missing people all the time. He's mostly private security work, but uh, uh, Gavin's group does do missing people. And, uh, you know, I, I, and quite frankly, I visited with him to get his opinion after the first day of being with Lou. 
And then, uh, of course, we come back to Southeast Texas and we get together as a team here in this office and we sit down and we discuss it and see if we can help. And I called Lou back uh, a couple days later and I said, okay, we'll take your case, Lou. And so Lou has done a great job over the last 38 years now, 37? Um, it's 35 this year. 35, and then we're coming up to a big anniversary. Yeah, um, November 20th. November 20th. Mm-hmm. And um, and so anyway, so I sat Lou down and I said, you know, I think we can help you. We amidst all this information that was in his garage. Uh, MJ Holmes was up there. Um, and we, we went through all this documentation, some is important some is not but we got a good look at this family we got a good look uh, of who they are but before we get into all of this i i made the decision about what caroline a month ago roughly about a month ago i i, I made the decision that i wanted to bring lou down here to southeast texas let him see our offices let him see the crew as they run in and out of the office with their caseloads and I wanted him to sit down and do a podcast with us. And you're going to ask yourself now, wait a minute, why are you putting on a, a father of a, of a missing child or missing children in this case, missing children? Doesn't that kind of go against what you talk about all the time, which is that we don't like to put our families up there for the world to see and to see their emotions and to see what they've been through. And I thought to myself, well, and so after I talked to a good friend of mine in the FBI that has been actually involved in this case and another one that is fixing to become involved in this case, um, they said, you know what, maybe it's time for the world to see Lou Zaharias. Maybe it's time for him to kind of come out a little bit because there hadn't been much news media coverage there hasn't been much television coverage, and it's getting harder and harder. Well, this case, folks, is a case that is now the number one longest missing unsolved. parentally unsolved, parentally kidnapped case in the United States of America. That's true. Uh, it is true. And, and so we have, again, gotten with our friends of the federal government, U.S. Attorney's Office, Orange County uh, Sheriff's Office, Orange County District Attorney's Office. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got a frog this morning. And uh, and we have gotten together with the District Attorney's Office over there. And we kind of said, hey, you know, we'd like to put Lou on the air and, 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 and let, let the world see the anguish. Let the world see the anger. Let the world see the sadness. And let the world see the people that are behind these cases. You know, you see us all the time and we talk and I have a tendency to rattle on sometimes, but you see me talk about these cases and everybody, you know, like the D.R. Coons case and all these cases we work throughout the United States and you get to hear it from me, but you don't ever get to hear it from the loved ones involved. So today Lou has come in and he's agreed to sit down and do this podcast with us and sit down and tell his story. So, Lou, what I'd like you to do, if possible, uh, and, and he, and let me tell you first before I go on, Lou is probably one of the most genuine men that you'll ever meet. He cares, he talks, and he walks the talk through his care of the people that we work with around the world. And so I wanted you folks, you guys out there in the world to see a true victim. Now, 
Lou, what I'd like you to do is I would like you to just kind of introduce the case to the people. I want I want the folks to see and hear this case out of your eyes, heart, mind, body, and soul. And I want you to talk slow because you talk a little fast like me. I want you to talk slow and just take us all the way back to that day when the kids left and Caroline get the Kleenex ready because he's already tearing up. Well, so let's 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 start it. Let's start it. Try to keep and, and try try to keep composure. I know it's hard, but I'd like you to try to keep composure and then just talk to us like we were just talking. And I want you to forget all the lights and the cameras and the and the and the, and the microphones and the modulators and everything else we got in here. I want you to tell us. Well, I'll tell you what, let's do it this way. Let's go back to the first day you met me when we were in your apartment in California and, and how you were able to keep it together. And we sat at your kitchen table and you told us your story. Tell us your story of well, what happened. Well, I was a um, 33-year-old dad. What year? 1987. Um, and I had my two children, Christopher and Lisa May, and my wife, Susan. And um, I, I pretty much imagined in my mind that we were like any other family starting out, basic struggles. Um, you and Susan met how? Uh, I met Susan at Western State University Law School. It was on August 22nd, 1977. Uh, it was her first day as the receptionist there. And it was my first day of orientation for law school. And the minute I saw Susan, it's what we call in Italian, ufumine, which is <laughs> the thunderbolt. It's how we say in German, oh my God. But anyway, <laughs> go ahead. And I was just struck by her um, beauty, her demureness. And I knew at that moment 44 years ago that that was the girl i was going to marry and ultimately i did marry her in 1981 on june 6th and the next day i graduated from law school during the interim between 80, 80 um 86 and 87 Unfortunately, um, Susan had developed a um, cocaine and crystal meth addiction, which she really hid well for me. And uh, Philip, as I told you in the past, I met Susan when she was just 17 and I had just turned 23. And we grew up together. She was my best friend. Okay. And... She could say to me, Lou, the sky is plaid. And I would say, yes, Sue, you're right. Okay, so how old, you were how old at the time? I had just turned 23 when 23, I was 23, and you're graduating from law school? Um, I started law school. That was orientation. Okay. All right. And she was how old? She was just uh, 17. She was going to be 18 in December. Now, was she living with family at 17, 18? She was living with her family in Chino, California, her mother and father, her older sister and older brother. Okay. So go from there. Well, um, 
to fast forward, um, we had um, a tough relationship during law school because her parents um, had a problem with me. Uh, I was an Italian Catholic from New York, and unfortunately, they were um, very, uh, you know, I hate to say it, prejudiced and bigoted, and they were uh, Dutch Reformed Baptist. And they um, and they were living in uh, Oklahoma. Is that correct? Well, they um, they moved to Oklahoma after um, Sue moved in with me. Okay. Uh, and they they made me the scapegoat. Essentially, they said because she moved out and we were in love, that I destroyed their family, and um, I stole their daughter away from them. And that's why, sadly, in 1987, when Sue got sick from uh, cocaine and meth abuse, it was the perfect revenge. I stole their daughter, so they planned and helped to steal Christopher and Lisa May. But the difference was Susan was 18 and made an adult decision when she moved out. Christopher was just three and a half, and the baby was only 15 months. Okay, let's, let's digress a little bit. So you guys moved in together. At the time she moved in, she was 18 years old, and you were, what, 23, 24? 23. 23 years old. Okay, so get us to the point where uh, you guys were living together. Everything was good? Well, yeah. I mean, we were young kids. Um, we moved to Huntington Beach, our first apartment together. And I won't say that we weren't wild. We partied. We did a lot of things, but we were young kids without children. You guys did drugs is what you're saying. Yes. Remember, we're talking to the people out there. We're yes, not, talking, we're not I, trying to hide anything. I, in fact, I was I was the one who was out of control in the late 70s and um, to the point where I eventually OD'd on what they call free base. Uh, they call it crack now. And Susan literally saved my life. And aside, How did she save your life? Well, I started to get a heart attack. Um, from the um, cocaine, uh, the crack, and um, my left side went numb. I started getting the cold sweats, and we had always um, were prepared because, like I said, I was the wild man in 1978. Now, were you practicing law at the time? Um, in, in, in 78 through 81, I was still in law school and finishing up law school. Okay. So you were in law school and she was just working. Right? She yeah. was working and where was she working? Um, she was working at that time for Mercury Insurance. Okay. And what was she doing for him? Um, claims, uh, claims adjusting. Okay, good. And she was pretty good at what she was doing, correct? Yeah, she was really holding it together. Like I said, she was in the control during those radical years when we were single and living at the beach. Okay. And so where, and let's get it, bring us up briefly, to bring us up briefly to um, the birth of your first child. Okay, so um, real quickly, uh, after I OD'd, she made arrangements with my family to take me back to New York. I went through rehab and we lived in New York from 82 to 85. And during the course of my coming back from the abyss, um, she became pregnant with Christopher in 1983, and he was born March 25th, 1984, and his birthday, he'll be 38 this March 25th. 
Now, there's been a lot of misconjecture out there uh, from the, no, not just say their names, the Nozel family uh, out on the uh, East Coast that you were some kind of wild man that you didn't care about life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. You didn't care about anything. All you wanted to do was party. And then uh, it was unsafe for you to be around well, their daughter. Is that true? Or, or my understanding is you went to New York and you went back with your family and she followed you. She went with you and you dried up. That was it. It was clean Yeah, up. see, they have the, the years and the generations wrong. Um, what they uh, were trying to use was the beach years, the Huntington Beach years. But the New York years were the years that I finally got it together and it was on my way. I had a great job at Metropolitan Life Insurance on Madison Avenue in the home office. I was bringing home a good paycheck. Um, but unfortunately, well, let me just step back a moment. When Christopher was born in 1984, that was the single most life-altering moment I had when I held that little boy in my arms. It was like holding God in my arms. Okay, gotcha. Well, look, we gotta we, we gotta stay focused, okay? I so am. let's stay focused. And folks out there, you may think I'm being a little curt and a little mean. I'm not. I'm just trying to get him calmed down to keep the message going because we have limited amount of time uh, to be able to do this podcast. So, Lou, I need you to kind of take a deep breath. You need water. I got water right there Thank for you. you. Um, and so, you know, we got to get through this. All okay. Right. So, so hold on. I want to clear some stuff up because okay. the other side is very vicious. Oh, okay. And so I want to clear this stuff up. So you're telling us today that when you went to New York, you cleaned up were you were you two friendly with each other? I mean, y'all live together still, that sort of thing. Oh yeah, okay. We, we loved each other. All right. Um, so let's desperately, get, desperately good. So when you guys moved on, right? When you guys moved on to New York, you go both had successful jobs and you were doing well. She became pregnant. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Take us from being pregnant to the birth. How'd she do during her pregnancy? Uh, she did really well. Okay. We went through Lamas, all the classes. We did everything the right way. The doctors, the gynecologists, you name it. The Sounds problem, like y'all got along pretty good. Yeah, everything was really going well. But the problem was Sue was a California girl. So she liked, she wanted to be out in Cali. She wanted to come back to California. So I was able, because I was doing well at Metropolitan, I was able to effect a transfer from um, the New York office to uh, the MetLife uh, Met building in Orange, the city of Orange okay. in 1985. All right. So in 85, you get there and who's born? Well, um, she became pregnant with Lisa May in 85, and Lisa May was born August 18th, 1986. Okay. And um, how was the delivery? Delivery was good? No. Um, unfortunately, when we moved to California in 1985, we moved right across from a drug dealer. Mm -hmm. And um, Sue became... Sue became friends with the girlfriend of the drug dealer. In fact, the girlfriend did not like me. I was kind of playing it pretty straight in those days. I was going to work. 
um, doing a job. I had a wonderful job in a law firm up in LA. I was commuting four hours a day, two hours up, two hours down and working a 10 hour day. So I was out of the office about a good 15 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And Susan and the drug dealer's girlfriend started um, having what they called coffee breaks, which were essentially cocaine and meth breaks. And Susan became more and more um, involved in the usage. And sadly, when I came home from work at night, I had eyes just for the kids, you know? I, okay, so let me ask you a quick question. Sue and you move back to California. You have an apartment. You have some bad hombres that live across the hall from you, correct? Across the way, yes. Okay, very good. And so Sue is pregnant. Is she using drugs or alcohol during her pregnancy? Yeah, Lisa May was born preemie weight. Um, she was only about um, uh, four or five pounds she was uh, when she was born. She didn't have to go into an incubator, but she was really depleted, and they mm -hmm. kept her there an extended period of time. Give me a, a week, month? Um, I'd say an extra 10 days okay. after the birth. All right. So after the birth of the baby, did, did, did Sue begin to use drugs again? Well, of course, I found this out after the fact. So I can only speak to what we learned um, through her friends who really, in some ways, I have to give them credit. She had two girlfriends who were supplying the Coke and Crystal meth. To Sue. To Sue. Okay. And she had been telling them... Um, all kinds of stories about uh, I was in the mafia and there was a contract to have her killed. And also so that's the, that's the drugs talking. Yeah. And they laughed and um, they were like, yeah, Sue, sure, sure. Take your drugs and go home. Right. And um, that's how she got them to feel sorry for her. And also they taught her how to hide it from me she would pack uh, makeup up her nose and then also all around um, like a, 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 I guess women use a foundation or a base and mm -hmm. it covered all the redness. And then, like I started to say, when I got home at work at night, I pretty much had eyes for the kids. And if I had a. For the kid, remember we're the, at, we're at the first child. Well, both of them. Okay. But we're at the first child right now. I'm trying to get you down the timeline. So, so Lisa Marie's Lisa Marie is Lisa May is, is the second child. Boy, they um, and Lisa May is born in '86. From '86, you were living in an apartment, and across the hall there were some drug dealers. She came home from the hospital and she started using drugs. And you say you believe that she was using during the pregnancy. Is that correct? Yes, that's what we found out afterwards. Okay. Cool. Let's stay with the timeline here. So you've got your commuting north to Whereverville. L.A., yeah. L.A., that's what I call Whereverville. <laughs> um, you're, you're gone north, and you're up there in L.A. working as a lawyer, right? Well, I, I was working as a law clerk. I law had clerk. My, my doctorate in law, but I had to take the bars. Okay, so you had your doctorate, and you're, you're ready to go. She's at home taking care of the baby during the day. It takes you two hours in the morning to get to work, two hours to get home. Then when you come home, you're concentrating on Lisa. Is that correct? And and Christopher, because Christopher okay. was two and a half then. Okay, we're not we're not 
to Christopher yet. Yes, sure. Christopher was born first and Lisa May was born second. Oh, well, that's how do we yes. get to Lisa first? I don't know. We've already passed Christopher and Lisa May. We're already oh to the second birth. All right. So we have to jump back now. Sorry for our audience. Okay. We have to jump back to Christopher. <laughs> it's a little uh, convoluted. It is convoluted. It, it all was happening the same with Christopher and with Lisa May. Yeah, everything was all at once. All of it was together. Okay. Let's go to Christopher's birth. Well, like I said, Christopher was born in New York. He was my little New York boy. Okay, that's where I went off. Okay. All right. So Christopher's born. Lisa's born. You come home in the morning. You come home in the afternoon. Uh, you go to work in the morning, come home in the afternoon. Then you take care of the children. Does uh, Sue have a job at that point? Uh, no. In fact, she had told me that the doctor's said her pregnancy was in jeopardy. So I actually took time off from work to care for her. Well, again, after the fact, it was because she was using so much uh, Coke and crystal meth. Um, and she was hiding it from you? Yes. And like I said, she disguised her 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 use of it. Got it. Now that, that now now we're back to square one. Okay, so you so you're working, she's got the children. Take us to the kidnapping. Okay, um, my mom came to visit us for Thanksgiving on or about uh, November 16th, 1987. Now, ever since I OD'd back in the 70s, um, Sue was in charge of our finances. I gave her my paycheck religiously. Uh, she had paid the bills for the longest time. And um, what happened, unfortunately, was once we hit California and she connected with the drug dealers, she wasn't paying the bills. She wasn't um, uh, using my paycheck. For example, Christopher had a speech impediment and he was supposed to get speech therapy. And she was using the money I gave her for his speech therapy for drugs. And she had accumulated quite a bit of debt. Uh, she had what kind of debt? Well, uh, she was bouncing checks. Uh, the uh, forensic accountant uh, discovered that she had written over $6,000 in bad checks to the merchants of Mission Viejo. She was not paying the utilities. She was not paying the rent. Um, she wasn't paying the car payments. Um, and she was hiding all this because what she had done was she purchased a secret mailbox at like a mailboxes, et cetera. And she changed our address to the secret mailbox. So all the NSF um, non-sufficient funds and warning notices from the, um, the bank and the car people. And now all this time you're going up to LA and you're working in, as a legal assistant, uh, as a doctorate legal assistant uh, up in this company. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So, so you would come home at night, there'd be no mail. You were thinking everything's just fine. The house payments being made, the car payments being made. Did anybody try to contact you, you regarding, because this is a very important part of their argument. Did anybody try to contact you, Lou, and say, hey, you, you're not paying your bills? Yes. After the fact, um, I discovered um, that, well, she used to say, let's turn the phone off at night so that we're not disturbed. So I never got any calls, but it's I started to get an inkling when a couple of our neighbors, our regular neighbors came over 
and told me that Sue bounced checks to them. And I started questioning about questioning her about them. Then as I started to say, when my mom came on November 16th, right before Thanksgiving, my mom was home with her. And the Sparklets water man came to the door and, and said, I want my money. And then the body shop called during the day and said, you bounced a check for $300. And on the evening of Thursday, November 19th, my mom brought all this to my attention and I questioned Sue about it. And she got very angry, very defensive, stormed upstairs. So on November 19th, 1987, you confront her about the money issues and the money problems, right? Correct, correct, exactly. And she blows a gasket, as all drug addicts do. And she stormed upstairs and wouldn't talk to any me or my mom the rest of the evening. On the morning of November 20th, it was a Friday, I woke up about 7 a.m. and Susan was standing over me saying, I got to come to L.A. and get your paycheck. I got to get your paycheck but I don't want to leave your mother alone in the house. She's going to go through uh, my, my private stuff. See, Philip, more I, paranoid behavior. I never went in Sue's purse. I wasn't the kind of husband to go it's in her purse. It's just paranoid behavior. It's, and I never went into her walk-in closet. She had her own walk-in closet. Also, at the same time, the money issues, she became visibly depleted. She was 5'7". And she was down to 89 pounds. She was. Okay. So we're at November 20th, 1987. She's 90 pounds, five foot, whatever. And she says, look, uh, she's displaying paranoid behavior. She says, hey, look, uh, I need to come get the paycheck to put it into the account. I'm sure she had to cover some bills or she had to make a stash run. Take me to that day. What happened? Well, I um, said to her, I said, my mom's not going to go through your stuff. And if it bothers you that much, I'll, I'll, I'll call in work. I'll go in late and I'll go to Lowe's or Home Depot and put a locking doorknob on your closet and you can lock your closet. And it, it wasn't good enough for her. She just followed me into the showers. Again, it's paranoid behavior. So we, I think everybody gets that out there. It's well, paranoid behavior. So. so Take me to when she when, when you leave for work that day or what happened. All right. So what happened was uh, she followed me into the shower, screaming about her privacy. I got out. I went downstairs for breakfast and she just started on a rant. And then all of a sudden she became physically violent. Um, Describe physically violent. She, she came at me kicking and punching and scratching and um i tried to push her off she just kept coming and the thing that actually frightened me um i'm i'm heavy now at that time i was like 275 pounds and i could not stop this 90 pound girl who just kept coming okay so you guys have a physical fight. She kicks you. What do you do? Push her away? I push her away. Take when, me from there. When I realized there was no stopping her, I decided I had to get out of there. I had to retreat. And I was hoping. Where was your mother? 
my mom was freaking out. My mom was seeing all this going on. She had never. So your mother was in the room and she could see everything that's going she, on. She was holding the baby. I understand. But this is part of their case. Now let's listen. So she's hitting on you. You're saying, Hey, I got to get out of here. I can't do this. Your mother is a witness to this. Where are the children? My mother's holding the baby in her arms. Baby? Baby. My baby girl. Okay. The small child. Okay. Yes. And she's newborn. Where's so your she, older child? Um, He was standing next to me. So saying, everybody's in the kitchen watching this happen. Yes. And he's saying like, daddy, why is mommy doing that? Daddy, why is mommy doing that? Okay. So moving on from that, we have, we have a fight. You retreat. Tell me what you do. Um, I leave and I, I was all disheveled and I couldn't go to work. Plus I was bleeding from the arms and the back of my neck where Susan had raked my neck with her fingernails. And I went to a comfort inn on Lake Forest Boulevard and checked in and called my work and told them I wasn't going to be able to come in that day. I was having a family issue and I washed up. And I, w I got there at about roughly 8.30, 9 o'clock. I stayed about two hours. And then I decided to go back, hopefully thinking that my mom was... A cooling off period. Well, and that my mom was able to calm her down. My mom always had a calming effect. All right. So what happened next? Well, I drive up to the uh, condo and my mom was laying on the sidewalk. And... Stop. You drive up to the condo and your mother is laying on the ground on the sidewalk? Yes. Okay. Very slowly, unemotionally, if you can. I know it's traumatic, but unemotionally, if you can. Take us to the, what happened? My mom said that, uh, Susan said, I'm going to take Christopher to school and I'm taking the baby too. And my mom said, well, Sue, there's no reason to take Lisa May. Um, just take Christopher. And she said no. And she punched my mom and beat her up on the doorstep, threw her down the front steps and left her there in the street. All right. So uh, did you call 911? Um, uh, oh, I believe that actually Sue called her sister in uh, Oklahoma prior to beating up my mom, telling her that she was going to take the kids. And we found that out from testimony and phone records. What's the sister's name? Uh, Juliana Gamble Nosal, N-O-S-A-L. Okay. And she's part of the family. It's a religious family. Yes. Um, uh, her, uh, her, their father is a very well-known deacon, or not a deacon, what I say deacon for? The husband. The, the, the husband, excuse me, is very well known in the uh, Lutheran church, if I remember correctly. Uh, is that right? Uh, it's uh, Antioch. Eastern Orthodox. Yeah, Lutheran, Antioch. Eastern Orthodox. Uh, and, and he mm. made the ranking of a bishop? Uh, Monsignor. Monsignor, okay. So he's a pretty big, big wig up there, right? Yeah, he has them all fooled. And he has access to areas in Detroit, down to Oklahoma. He's, I mean, he's like a, he's like a big dog. Yeah, he started out as a priest. Actually, I used to drive him to the seminary, believe okay. it or not. Okay, cool. So, all right. So we got mom up. We get mom up. We get her fixed up, get her cleaned up. How long of a time from the time you arrived to the time she had left? How long had your mother laid there? Oh, my mom said roughly, well, she was hard for her to tell, but she said roughly about maybe a, 
an hour or so she was there she was down on the ground for an hour but nobody saw her well nobody was around everybody had left for work for early. Work. okay okay and so you helped your mom got her cleaned up did 911 or did the police fire ems did anybody show up um the police showed up and also Who called the police I, I believe it was Sue's sister called from Oklahoma because Sue called and told the family that I had beat her up and that she needed to escape and that the mafia was going to kill her. Interesting. Didn't know there was mafia out in Oklahoma. But anyway, so, you, um, so you're out there. Uh, the police get there. You tell the police, uh, no, that didn't happen. Let me tell you what did happen. No, I told them everything. I told them that. And um, your mother talked to the police and told yes, them? Yes, and they actually took a um, assault battery case against Susan mm -hmm. for uh, beating up my mom. And also, um, I filed a parental kidnapping uh, case uh, report at the time. Okay. So, but they didn't file charges on her for that because they had no idea where the children were. No, and the sad part is they, um, Susan had gone to her aunt's house in Riverside and she filed a uh, assault and battery case, a domestic violence case against me. So the police never connected the two cases, unfortunately. Were you ever charged? No, But no. Sue was. Sue was. So there were, actually the warrant's still active. There's, yeah. there's a warrant active for her arrest right now for that. Okay, so door one. Door two, when was it that you went, uh-oh, she took the kids and she's on the lam? The minute my mom said Sue took the kids. Okay, I get that. But, I mean, did you no, go in the No, it all gelled. Everything gelled at that moment. Got it. But did you go into the house and did you look in their closets? Did you look for little bags? Did you look for, you know, you got an infant child. Did you look for? Uh... No, I immediately jumped in back in the car and drove to her grandmother's house in Lake Elsinore. Because aside from my mother, we never let anybody babysit the children okay. except her grandmother. So was she there at her grandmother's house? No, the place was all locked up tight. Okay. So that's her means of getting away. She got her family, her relative, to get her in the car yes. with the two kids. Now, from that point on, okay, we got to condense this a little bit. I now. understand. Okay. So from that point on, when you went, uh-oh, the kids are gone, uh-oh, the house is locked, right? Did you hear from her any time between point A and point B being the house to... And I know technology was horrible back then. There wasn't yeah, any texting. Was or phone back then. Yeah, there were no cell phones. Well, there were rich cell phones. There were 10,000 bag phones. They had the brick. Yeah. Remember the brick? I do. And so, um, so in that, there was no communication. She didn't try to call home. She didn't try to say, look, I'm, I'm going for a vacation. She didn't make any phone calls. The that's last yes time no. I ever saw. Hold on. That's a yes or no. This it is important. I never heard from Susan ever again. Okay. But you didn't hear anything between A and B. Never. Now, now we're to, if my math is right, please correct me. But if my math is right, we are somewhere around November 24th at this point. Um, yeah, roughly because of a day after that, after the kidnapping, the Orange County Sheriff's Fraud Unit came to arrest Sue 
for check fraud. Okay, so they were hunting her down now. Now she's got more warrants for arrest. Yes, correct. So now we have multitude of warrants. By the way, they're still active. I'd want you to know. Um, yeah. But so now she has not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven, but she has eight warrants for her arrest. Yeah, okay. um, at least. No, no, it's eight warrants for her arrest. They group some of the checks together. So she has, and these are misdemeanor counts, except for the felony. Felony check fraud you, and know. felony um, so, parental kidnapping. Those are the two. Well, I didn't even include that yet, because remember, we're going through the timeline. Right. Okay, so right now, at that point, they got eight warrants for her arrest. Orange County's got their radar up. They want her in jail because they're getting pressure from where she wrote the checks from, et cetera, et cetera. So you go oh no and you go down to the local police department you say i've got a parental kidnapping going on this is this is what's happening tell me what happened and then i'm going to ask you a list of questions because i think it's important for our friends out there that listen to this and that are watching this today i think it's important for them to see how the system works and how it how it did not work for you so talk to me a little bit well in 1987 there weren't even amber alerts then right. um they were looking at me like they do in every um, spousal case, like I was the bad guy. Okay, so let's step back again. I want you to listen to my question. You're a bad lawyer. Listen to my question. Okay. <laughs> you didn't, there's no contact, correct? No contact ever. Okay. You went down to the police department and said, hey, I've got a drug addicted wife that has, at that point, eight warrants for her arrest out. She's on the lam. She's got the two kids. Did they suggest filing parental kidnapping or what did they suggest doing? No, I had already filed it. So it's already filed. Plus now it's fixing to go in front of the magistrate. I'm fixing to have parental kidnapping. Correct. What did they tell you? How did they treat you? I think it's important for the people out there to hear how, let me just give you a, a brief example. A lot of my female clients, Police look at them. And for those of you who are police officers, just listen to me. Don't get upset. I get letters. They look at people on average. They look at people and say, well, it's the mother. Or, well, it's the father. I mean, it's a civil matter. We don't want to deal with it. Did you get any of that? Oh, yeah, that was the mindset. Okay, expand upon that just a little bit. Well, the mindset was, uh, in fact, Ernie Allen from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children wrote a thesis about it. It's the kid is with the parent. How bad can it be? Right. And, um, and that's what they say to you. That's what they say to me when I go visit with law enforcement. I'll sit down with them and I'll say, hey. Uh, you know, I'm I've been I'm a shadow in this case. My my job, I don't want to get in your way, but you know, we've got we're gonna do a shadow investigation behind you and we're just gonna see if anybody missed anything because trust me, we're one of the best firms in the United States. You don't have to sell me. I love Okay, you. I know. But but my point is is that we make mistakes too. Yeah, I know. Okay. And so um what I'm trying to say to you is that did you get any of that? Hey, you know, yeah, or pushback, and, I'll call it. Yeah, and they asked me if I had a divorce lawyer. And, there you uh, go. And they asked me if I was going to file separation or um, divorce papers. And I told them I didn't want to divorce her. I, I actually didn't even file for separation. 
I I filed an order to show cause for her to appear because I. But they didn't serve her. Well, we tried, but we couldn't. But the point is, we didn't serve her. And if you're not served, you're not under any obligation. And if you're served and you still, you're a lawyer, you know, 72 hours beforehand, right? Oh, yeah, at least. You have to have 72 hour notice for the papers to be. But what I, I was begging for mediation and reconciliation. So I kept calling John Nelson, the alleged priest, um, and kept telling him, you know, I want to do anything I can to fix this family, to get her counseling. And I was still... What was his reaction? You know, I, I, I could kick myself because I was so protective of her, even though I knew that she was involved in drugs. I kept telling him... I think she's sick. I didn't want to say the words okay. drugs. So, so yeah, I, I get, I get all that. But what was their reaction when you would say, "Hey, I need to, I need, I, I, I got to get her help." What would she say? We don't know any. He, he. I can, I can attest to my conversation with him, and it was, I don't know anything. The last I heard, she was in a shelter for battered women in California. Yes, and the fact is. She was in his house. Okay. So, but we found that out later. Let's get to later, later. Well, right now, all you know is your wife and children are missing. She's taken off. She's on the run. Great. Okay. So that starts this case, November 24th, 1987. Yes. That's the first day that everything's filed with the courthouse. Everybody's spun up. You've got the DA of Orange County spun up. You got... You got everybody spun up on the east Co- on the west coast, excuse me. So everybody's spun up. They're starting to issue warrants for her arrest. They're putting her in CIC. If she gets pulled over, she gives an ID. She's going to immediate jail uh, for parental kidnapping, which is number one felony for a felony check. I think it was over. I think it was what was it four ninety nine nine nine. I think it was something like that. Oh, I think it is. Um... Four, let's not worry about the details. But there's another felony warrant check, and then she has. Uh, up to eight other warrants for her arrest that would immediately put her in to jail. The children taken from her and her brought back to California to stand trial. You would have received immediate custody of the children. Am I correct on that? Yes, but to be fair, I even told them that I was willing for CPS, Child Protective Services. Yeah, that's that's all to, problem. I get it. To that's investigate. All you were doing the right thing as a lawyer. You knew the law. You were doing the right thing. So... Listen to me, Lou. I'm saying on that day, November 24th of 1987, began uh, began the nightmare. The nightmare, which we were dealing with law enforcement agencies that would look at it and roll their eyes and say, it's just the mother. You know, well, she's a wanted fugitive. Well, okay, we'll get her when we get her, right? We know she took off and she went to her father's house at that point, correct? First. 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 All right. And how did you discover that happened? Um, that we found out through discovery later on in investigation. Right. Um, she went to her father. Well, she went from Mission Viejo, California to Riverside at her aunt's house, filed a false police report with, um, the Riverside police from there, went to Oklahoma, stayed there a few days. Auntie took her. Excuse me. The aunt took her right to Oklahoma. Correct. And the grandmother. 
and um, on drove and then went to Detroit, Michigan, where I was calling daily and they were telling me she wasn't there. They didn't know she was in a shelter for battered women. And we ultimately found out that she was in the house and my children were being kept prisoner in that. Okay. So I don't, again, I don't want to get mixed up in the, in the fine details. Let's keep it basic. Basically, we had a wanted fugitive with two children being helped by the family. You then made the decision, okay, if law enforcement isn't going to take this seriously, I am, I'm filing a lawsuit. Custodial you, interference. You filed a lawsuit. Um, she was served, but she was served by publication. Correct. Because they could not put it in her hands because the family had her stashed somewhere around the United States, either Detroit, Michigan, either in Oklahoma, which we do know she was there, uh, and then all the way out to the East Coast. Ultimately, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Okay. So, so we know the family was stashing her everywhere they possibly could. Now, here's the question. And a lot of people will ask you this question, especially when this all comes to a conclusion. Could you explain to us why you filed a civil suit against the Nozel family and the sister and the, everybody involved? Why did you, let's just keep it basic. Why did you, why did you file a civil suit? Because people get confused on this. You already have at that point, nine warrants for her arrest. Three of them are class one felonies, right? So, I mean, She's coming home. I mean, she's coming out of California. She goes sit in the can until they adjudicate her. She pleads. But the other eight at that point, hold on, other eight, she had eight charges. So we know if law enforcement catches up with her, she's coming home. She's She's got to bring the kids and she's going to come home. The question in everybody's mind, and this is the question I get a lot of times when I'm talking with the FBI or the U.S. attorney or on your case. Explain to me and explain to the public. You don't explain to me. Explain to the public, why did you file, you, Lou, why did you file that lawsuit? Because within a, a couple of months of the kidnapping, I had my first nervous breakdown for emotional distress. And I was hospitalized um, for uh, two weeks in a psychiatric ward. And the purpose of the nervous breakdown was, according to the files that I've read, and you tell me if I'm wrong, because you need to have this story out there that you had the, the, your children had been taken from you, you had your wife that had been taken from you, and you were in that balance, according to law enforcement. You were in that balance. Or, are they alive? Are they dead? I don't know. I don't know anything. Nobody's telling me anything. This is the effects that can happen to people, because you're not the only one, boo. You're not the only one. The effects of the trauma of losing your children and your wife at this point and not knowing whether or not they're dead or alive can cause an emotional breakdown. Am I right about that? Yes, actually, the National Center has a project called Team Hope, and you have to be a five-year veteran of a kidnapping because most parents commit suicide within the first five years that is true. of losing their kids. That is true. But look, stay calm because your kids aren't lost. They're just out there. We'll find them. So, so here's my point to you. And to you folks out there in, in the public, you must understand that when people lose their family members, 
okay, when people lose their family members out there, there is a point in time where you have to stand up and you have to recognize that there is another set of victims out there. And that is, in this case, Lou, in this case, his mother, in this case, other family members on this man's side of the fence. While this other group is hiding their daughter, hiding these two children, and believing, believing that this man is a mafia guy when all he is is a freaking lawyer and he worked at a freaking insurance company, right? And we have all this verified. He's no mafia hitman. He's no mafiosa type. It's probably one of the most silly things I think I've ever heard. But remember, when you have somebody that's on drugs and they are paranoid and all they want is their next fix. Am I right, Caroline? You are. When all they want is their next fix, they'll come up with these elaborate stories and buy gads, they can sell it. They could sell you a used VW for $10,000. Well, that's probably what it is now. <laughs> a used VW for $25,000 and you'd buy it because you felt sorry for them. Oh, if I don't get this, I don't get my bonus. You know, whatever the story is. So in this case, we've got a man that all he is, he's worked his way through law school. He's trying to pay his law bill, law school bills off. He gets a job as a legal consultant with, uh, with a, a very nice company out in, in Los Angeles. And we've got a lady that, you know, starts using drugs and she becomes paranoid. And then she takes off and convinces her family that, hey, this man's back. Now, let's go down the line a little bit. We're, we're done with all the history. Okay. Now, when did Orange County and the United States Department of Justice start getting real serious about your case? Honestly, when you guys got involved, um, because they would not talk. Before you guys, I went through about 15 different private investigators who worked it a little while, took a lot of money, and quit. There was one old gentleman who tried very hard. He passed away uh, recently. But when you guys came on, and they wouldn't work with him. Um, they wouldn't work with anybody. It's only when you and Caroline came on board. And there is a, a wonderful uh, DA investigator who I was able to develop a rapport with, um, this is in Orange County, California. In Orange County. Um, and remember, if for you, those of you in law enforcement that are watching us and that are watching this thing, the, the, the case nexus is in Orange County, California. Thank you for, thank you for saying that about us, but but it's not us. But that's the man I, I love. He, uh -huh. He's the one cop out of 19 investigators in 35 years. Well, I want to just say, and I know that probably the Orange County DA is going to see this, and I want him to know that those guys down there and missing exploited children out there, those guys have done a bang up job. Now, as the cast, as the case moved through different investigators, yes, a lot of people look negative on that. I kind of look at it as a positive because it's always good to have another set of eyes on things. And that's what we did. We came in and said, okay, Lou, we'll pull everything we got. We came down here with a few boxes of information. And then Caroline made the initial phone call uh, to uh, Orange County DA's office and they welcomed us with open arms. Why did they do that? I think they saw, Lou, our history and bringing children home and bringing missing people home. But I got to tell you, I mean, you're wearing one badge of honor, I guess it is. The case, your case, is now the number one case in the United States for uh, missing children. 
And uh, that has gotten the attention of everybody up and down the coast in, in uh, you know, in the federal law enforcement and the state law enforcement. Um, that's got the U.S. Marshals spun up in, uh, in an area we can't talk about right now. That has uh, a bunch of people spun up. So I appreciate your words. But, but I mean, we work together good with law enforcement. Conjecture of what you hear out there. You know, we have some, some of my best friends, would you not agree, Caroline, are in law enforcement? Mm-hmm. Some of my best friends. I mean, I, I hang out with these guys. I mean, we, we, we go drink coffee. We talk about cases. We talk about things that are going on. Um, and and, and oh, not only here, but in Houston, Dallas. Uh, now we have some good friends up in Amarillo, uh, you know, and, and uh, L.A. and what, New York. Where, where is uh, where's Castile now? He's in, the, he's in New York now. I, I deal with them. He's big time. So these are the these are the things that I want you to know. It's not us, okay? It's them, and it's them opening their minds. Because you know what? When I've said this before, and I've said it again, when you get public, and, and and the public being law enforcement, and private being the PSB guys like me, you get us doing this, Katie, bar the door. And I think that we and they have moved your case in the last eight years probably further than you would ever dream of it moving. And I appreciate it. Yeah. And we communicate weekly. Caroline does. Uh, we communicate weekly. We work together as a team uh, to get things done. And by God, I love it because that's what, that's what should happen. Working together as a team. Now let's get you to the point now. And I want to fin- kind of finish this section up and then we're going to talk a little bit about what's happened. Okay. You finally get us on board. We give you a call and you say, but I don't know that they're going to work with you because they're very secretive. They are very secretive. And they were. And they should be. Um, and so we call you back and say, yeah, we talked to your case manager. We've got it all. We've got this, 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 <laughs> this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and we're done. And we're, we're, I'm, uh, Phil's flying back out there and we're going to sit down and we're going to work on this, this, and this, and this. That's when you kind of went, why is it taking so long? And that's when your frustration came out. Uh, why are you talking to him and not me? I'm the victim. And the reason was, is they were worried about you and your mental state. Is that correct? Well, yeah. Ultimately, I wound up having three nervous breakdowns in uh, 88, 92, and 2013. In 2013, after your emotional breakdown, you finally went, okay, I got to get serious about this. I got to get these people online. Uh, I've got to get them out in the field, get them working. And, and that's when you came on board came around on 2013 board. Right. and took a lot of the emotional stress off of me mm-hmm. because uh, you had asked me uh, before, what else did I do besides the police? I wound up registering with fifth at the time in the 80s. A lot of them are defunct now for lack of donations and funding, but I signed up with 15 missing children's groups, starting with John Walsh's Adam Walsh Child Resource Center, Child Find, Find the Children, Vanish Children's Alliance, Child Quest International. And a lot of them are gone now because, you know, in hard times, the first thing that people stop doing is making donations. We went through a hard time from 13 and on. And uh, uh, I think that, uh, I think when, um, uh, Bush 40, uh, what was it? 45. Which Bush was it that signed the child act into place that funded a lot of these neck and, um, all the other, uh-huh. 
what was that? Well, I think it was, it wasn't 41, Mm-mm. 43. It was mm-hmm. Bush 43 that uh, signed that bill. And he, he plunged through the Department of State. And that's what opened up the Department of State of Child Affairs. Uh, that's what kind of opened Pandora's box. And then uh, I got to say, you know, Barack Obama, he doubled, he doubled the money and put it in there. That's not for guys like me. That's to expand government a little bit to see, because we were having a, oh God, we were having such a hard time um, uh, dealing with other governments regarding missing children and children well, that have been kidnapped and taken to other parts. The international stuff is, it's, it's, it's mind boggling. It it's just, terrible. it's, can I talk to John? Yeah. John left. Okay. Susan took John's place. Susan. Okay. Can I talk to Susan? Well, Susan's left. What? Okay. Well, who's in charge? Especially during the change of administration. Oh, that's the last office to get, get, uh, get people yeah, put in. You know, despite all the, uh, political, political rhetoric, it, Lots of times children are on the bottom of the list. On the bottom of the list. Well, I don't know if it's the children or the priorities. Remember, these are all political appointee positions. And, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about the Department of State, nor do I want to say anything about children affairs uh, inside the Department of State, uh, missing exploited children and that sort of thing. But the government funding came through and they combined everything into NECMEC. And once they did that, it streamlined it for us, yes. It's streamlined. We have one group we can communicate with now, uh, and it streamlined it for us, but in law enforcement especially. But it's like right now we're sitting at the children, the Department of State Children Affairs. We're one year into the Biden administration. There's one person in there, and if you've ever gone up there, I've gone up there. I've, I, they took us up there on a tour in the Obama administration. Oh, really? uh, investigators like me. There's only four of us, so there. I was one, and like I said, the other three came, and one, I think, passed, so there's only three of us now. But they took us up there, and they showed us and introduced us to the staff, and the Obama administration put some serious money into it because it was such a crisis. But now the numbers have started to go down tremendously yeah, because sadly. Mexico, you, there's no more of this run into Mexico because these ladies figure out you run across the border, you're, you're going to get raped first, and the second thing, your children are going to get pawned off to somebody. And the third thing is, is you're going to be hanging off an overpass with a noose around your neck. You're going to die. And so the cartels have completely taken over Mexico now. In fact, guys like me, you know, we, we go down heavy. I mean, we we're, we're ready to go to work when we go down there because it's, it's, it's so bad. I got in a car chase once down in, uh, uh, had the federales chasing me around, uh, what was that city? Uh, Tupula? T-U-P-I-L-I-A? No, it was, uh, I can't think of the name. Oh, God. I, I mean, I got in the car chest. I had a bunch of friendlies chasing me, shooting and everything else, shooting. And I'm like, oh, my God. But um, my point is, is that now everything has become so sophisticated in this business. I mean, you got to know what you're doing. You're not just going to go out and do a family interview and then go, okay, I'm going to go look. Yeah, no, no, no. You got to have a relationship with law enforcement. You got to have a relationship with the Department of State. You have to have a relationship with uh, the Federals and you have to have a relationship with Interpol. And technology. And technology as well. So first thing we did on your case is we went to Interpol and we said, we got to put this lady's face up and we got to put her in your database. They said, well, you can't do that. We got to have some type of law enforcement. We said, okay, within 15 minutes, Orange County called and said, put them up. She's up. 
So the international side, if she tries to travel, if her fingerprint goes anywhere, because we got her fingerprint and we got her DNA. So if her fingerprint hits, which they say is a little bit defaced, but we, we've got it. Well, we have a partial fingerprint. We have a partial, I'm mm -hmm. sorry, because of the defacedness. That's not even a word. No, Because of the defaced fingerprint. Um, and her dental record. And her, did I not say that? No, no. that one. You haven't. All right. So her, in her dental records. So we've got all three of these things and we're ready to go. Okay. All we need to do is have her pop her little head up and try to get on an airplane somewhere or something go wrong with her. Boom. Now that brings us to Oklahoma where her family's from. And she had families living on the top of this hill, like on a little ranch. Yeah, they were Oklahoma oil people. That's right. They, they still get oil royalties, a lot of oil royalties. So they, yeah. they're flush with money. I saw so some let's, of the checks. Yeah. So let's, so let's talk. Tell, well, us, tell us a little bit about the day the family member died. And I'm not going to set it up for you. I want you to tell it about it. And tell us about when she showed up at the funeral home. And this was, what, three years ago? About that, yeah. Three years ago. So um, tell us the story. Well, um, we had heard that Susan's mother died on um, Norma Jean Gamble, and um, we saw an obituary that stated that Norma's surviving relatives were Susan, Christopher, and Lisa May. And apparently, and they actually put this in other folks out there. They actually put that in an obituary. I mean, it's just too much. I just so oh. I know that you did your thing, and um, ultimately, she did show up, but the night before the funeral, apparently, uh, so and she gave the funeral director a story, and I believe you missed her by a day no, no we were well no we were there we were there watching the funeral home but the problem was is when the sun went down right right and and so we just figured the funeral director locked up the funeral home and everybody left well apparently about an hour or two after we left according to the funeral director he got contacted at home right on the on the on the what do you call it? I pager. Guess when somebody, a pager when, when people die i guess they page them and uh, they called her and uh, they had a number and the number was a number that was an active number. It was a throw phone, but it was an active number. And he called and she said, you know, look, I, I don't have a lot of time. I need to go see my mother. Would you please open the door so I can go see my mother? I can go say goodbye. You know, she did her usual. Yeah. Bull she does. So it was a manipulator. So she shows up. Our guy leaves. Right. And, and we and trust me, we had the U.S. Who do we have on standby? U.S. Marshals. We had the local police on uh, the local sheriff, not the local police, because they were connected in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, the local sheriff on standby, and we had uh, uh, another investigator. We had another investigator there as well, and uh, uh, and, and everybody shut down shop at about well, sundown was what six thirty two, and we shut down shop at seven because we couldn't see. And so we figured, okay, well, maybe it'll be tomorrow. We'll look for the woman wrapped in a stole. And we actually had an undercover guy in the damn funeral. And so uh, we came back and uh, we talked to the funeral director after they lowered her on the ground. So, oh, no, 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 no. Well, what'd she look like? Well, she had glasses on. Glasses at night? Yeah, glasses at night. 
Uh, her hair was very dark and they, they gave a good description of her. And we were like, are you kidding me? We missed her by an hour. Are you kidding me? And it was, a, it's a, tell all this to my young investigators. If you get a gut feeling something's going to happen, follow your gut. And I had had a gut and I just didn't give the order to have them stay there, let them go get some food because they've been there since sunrise in the morning, what, 13, 14 hours at that point. They'd been there and uh, we could have swooped in and we could have gotten her, but it just didn't happen. So um, that was frustrating for you, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really frustrating uh, because, you know, you're on the edge of your chair waiting for that phone call. Um, and you I, knew we had an undercover operation going on. Well, I was aware that there were things going on. Sometimes you spare me some of the details because I get too worked up. No, <laughs> I do. I'm like an exposed nerd. That's, that's why I love you so much. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, it's it was frustrating, and then of course that generates frustration, generates anger sometimes. Right, you know? right. But um, you brought up Oklahoma, and you asked me um, before why I brought that civil suit, and there was a point that I wanted to get across, which. It's really important to me and, and to the legacy of my children. And when Christopher and Lisa May were first uh, stolen, I used to think that all the missing kids on the milk cartons and on the shopping bags were stranger abductions. And then I started to research and educate myself and learn that 350,000 children a year are family abducted um, by a family member or a parent. And or a I, sibling. Or a sibling. And a sad thing is, too, regarding siblings, which they did to Christopher and Lisa May before you guys came on, is they separated them as brother and sister, uh, which is a terrible, terrible thing to do. But... Um, I learned about all these people like me who wanted to find their kids as much as I did and who didn't have the wherewithal or the education to, to, to find a voice. And I, I felt I needed to be a voice. And when we were in court in Oklahoma, we were getting ruled against on every level, trial court, appellate court, because her family had so much money and influence. And I had this great old Oklahoma lawyer who said to me, Lou, if we have to take this to the Supreme Court of Oklahoma, we, we will. will. And we ultimately did. And the case of Zaharias versus Gamble is a landmark case that has changed the law of Oklahoma. No, 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 no. Not just Oklahoma. Well, the All country, over the United States. But since yeah. it's out of Oklahoma, essentially, it's the most cited custody case in the United States. The Supreme Court is citing it up in Washington. In fact, they teach our case in law school. Yep. And it established a parent's right to sue third parties for maliciously interfering in the parent-child relationship. Now, the only thing that I want to add here is there is an affirmative defense inside the law that the Supreme Court recognizes now, which is that you say third party, which is great. So let's say you and I are married and Caroline helps hide the kids, but our Caroline takes 
the children and the mother to uh, the, the, the bus station or the train station or the airport. You can't sue Caroline for that if she does if she doesn't know that right. the child, the children are absconding or the mother is absconding. You, you can't do that. But if you show that there's a monetary value, right, one. And there's intent. That's where I was going. Intent. So if you have monetary value and have intent, then they're then they're in the lawsuit. Yeah. Now let's tell the public you won the lawsuit. It was all the way brought back down from it was remanded back down, overturned the trial courts, uh, and you won how much money? Well, I can't. I can't. Okay, so it's X amount. It's X amount. So X amount has now gone X amount times 10, 20, 30? Well, a lot, but um, you know the lawyers. Are, I understand. The lawyers. So I don't want to say anything. Out of, I don't, and all that. And, 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 and so the purpose of this is for you to be able to facilitate for uh, your children, even though they're 38 and 35 now, right? 38, 35, Yes, I, I want something to give to them. Yeah, give, I, not only give to them, but get them emotional help. Because could you imagine being 35 years old? They're probably married at this point, and they probably have a couple of children. And who knows what you've been said about you uh, to the children. Um, and this gives an opportunity for psychological services. This gives an opportunity to give back to the children what they deserve. Right. And, 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 the, and this gives a reunification money for reunification, which is out of my ballpark. It's in her ballpark, but it's out of my ballpark. And All I you, do is hunt. And as you and I talked about before we went on the air, the parent alienation syndrome. Yeah, pass. And, and, and Caroline will, I'm, I'm, I'm going to move the mic over to her in just a second. She's going to talk about that pass a little bit. Um, but this this is a classic case, is my belief of parental alienation syndrome, and and, and, and again, you know, well, I just let's just do it now, Caroline. Uh, talk about parental alienation and what it means. Well, <clears throat> parental alienation is where one parent intentionally displays um, to the child or children negative, uh, negative, like unjustified behaviors aimed at the other parent. Um, the whole purpose of doing so is to damage the parent-child relationship, um, and it causes severe emotional distress for the children as uh, in that moment, but also as they grow up and as it continues. In Lou's case, these children have been alienated from him for 30, it'll be 35 years this year. So, I mean, that right there shows that it's years and years of uh dealing i mean for all we know they they don't even know that he's alive he they could have been told that he is dead at this point um so all of that tied into one is severe alienation in a case that has gone on this long thanks Caroline. there you go now that she's the smart one of the crew okay <laughs> she's got all the phds and everything else behind her but here's my point my point is is there's two humans that are Americans, if that gives you any hint of what we're doing, two humans out there that are Americans that who knows what they've been told. Now, we understand through intelligence and working with a family member and we, that these children think Lou's dead. I mean, that's just what he's been told. They've been told Lou's dead. And he's not. And could you imagine the crushing feeling for a child when you're told your daddy's dead or your daddy died before you were born or whatever the case is? And, 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 and I have watched uh, 
Lou, and you know about this. I was I flew down to Mexico to get a mother and a child, and um, uh, and down. And I, if I say the name of the town, everybody go, "Ooh, I know that case." Uh, but flew down and uh, had a psychologist, FBI, a CIA guy, and me. And we flew into this city, and we got this child, and we took off and came back to the states. And when we landed. Uh, the child walked up to the mother and said, why did you say that about my dad? Because one of the things we do is we have a book that we make for the, cho for the children to say, no, this is what's happened in my life. It's a picture book right. with pictures in it. Say, no, this is on your birthday this day. We had a cake. You weren't here, but we had a cake and we blew in the cake. You know, those are the sort of things we do psychologically wise. And I, I do that through uh, psychologists that we use out of San Antonio, Texas, a programmer. And these kids, and that's why I bring up the program. These kids will need on oh, kids. I say kids. I mean, to me, they're kids. They know me too. But, but but these these young people, Lou, and you know this. You've seen this. You've dealt with the people at NetMech. You've dealt with all this. They will need to be deprogrammed. Yes, and the absolutely. D, and the deprogramming will be very 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 interesting to see how they work with the, the kids, your kids, in deprogramming because they're going to have to go home. And work with their husband or wife if they're married or their children it's it's a trickle down thing that can go generations if you could send a message right now to your children i would say christopher and lisa may take a breath please just give me a chance just a chance to be your dad or to be your friend if we can't go that far and if we have grandchildren Please let me be some small part of my grandchildren's life. Now, if you had a message to send us to Sue, what would you say to her? Susan, I don't hate you. I never did. I never got to say goodbye. I never had closure with you. So a part of me will always love you. I just hate what you did to the kids and to our family. So please, Sue, show mercy, show forgiveness for whatever you think is wrong. Show compassion to the kids, please. And we're not going to lie to you. You've got some serious charges. You've got nine felony or three felony warrants for your arrest and no more than that. But anyway, and so we're not going to lie to you. You're going to have to go deal with your stuff over in Orange County. And I think your parents have enough money to do that. And I think it's important to add some major things for anybody that's listening to this podcast, whether you think you're Lisa May, whether you think you're Christopher, whether you're a family member that is trolling everything that we do so that you can feed it back to them. I think it's important to to say here, I mean, even the laws, not just the laws that Susan has broken, but the laws that the family has broken, um, concealing them, hiding them, hiding to them, lying to law enforcement, lying to the FBI, lying in court. Um, as well as, you know, the obituary that was previously discussed right here, where it says that um, the survivors include um, Susan E. Gamel and uh, grandchildren, uh, Christopher and Lisa, um, you know, yet the sister is collecting all of the oil rights and the money from the oil that, you know, she shouldn't be collecting if Susan's alive. So which is it? Is she alive or is she dead? And why are you hiding that? Um, and for anybody else that that believes that they 
could be Lisa or could be Christopher, we encourage all people to in, uh, to get your DNA put into the systems 23andMe, Ancestry, um, the, the national system for DNA, um, and see if you're a match. We know that Lou has his DNA in all of those and more. Um, and so that would be a good way to verify that you indeed do have a father. <clears throat> Sorry, we're having to pass around this mic, but that's just the way it is for technical issues today. Um, and Lou, I'm going to tell you something, and I, uh, I've never said this to you, and I'm going to tell it to you right on the air right now. I, 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 I want, I want, I want Sue's sister. I want her to go sit some time in jail. She has to. She's violated two major felonies that we know about now that she's probably going to end up getting a piece of paper on this year. Uh, number one is swearing in a document yeah. that says that uh, Sue's dead. And also she lied in her depositions. Yep. Well, that's not going to get her a felony. That could be aggravated perjury down the line. But the one that's going to get her is going to be the one where she swore under oath, under oath, that's aggravated perjury big time, where Sue was dead. And she's not dead. She is not dead. And so the, she is, and what, what makes it a felony is that she's getting all the oil revenues, all of the oil revenues from the oil wells in Oklahoma, and she's benefiting from that. She has lied, and maybe Sue does knows. Maybe Sue doesn't know. Who knows? But we're gonna find out. But the bottom line is, is that is that all those oil revenues have gone to her, and she has made her estate wealthy. By I mean, by her estate herself, her estate is now uh, healthy. Enriched. That's it, and it's enriched. And you know, as a lawyer, you know what that means. You know what the court's going to do. They are going to punch her ticket out in California and in Oklahoma. We could have a double situation uh, here in Oklahoma and uh, in, uh, in, uh, on the West Coast. I mean, this could be a situation where it's not good for her and she's going to end up going to jail. Now, may, she may say, well, I got millions of dollars in the bank. I can hire any attorney I can. Great. You're going to go up against a government that has unlimited funds. Remember that. And I'll be the first person to go sit on the witness stand and say, this girl is a bold-faced liar. And she helped stash these kids and she helped stash the, the mama. And uh, now she's enriching herself. Hmm, that's interesting. And she, of course, one thing that's important, Carolina, is she can't, she can't say, oh, well, I just made a mistake and I, I've been giving the money to my sister. Then she's an accomplice in it. And now she's going to catch another felony for uh, for uh, for aiding and abetting. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Here's my message, folks. And I know we've got, Carolyn's giving me the signal. Um, here's my message. You guys out in Oklahoma, Michigan, Pennsylvania, wake up. And what are, where does she live now, the sister? South Carolina? Oh, South Carolina, I believe. Let me, let me, let me, let me say this. We're watching each of you. And you're going to make a mistake and you're going to go serve time in jail or do the right thing and give them up and cut your deal with the DA. Cut your deal. Cut your deal. All right, Lou, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Philip. Love you. Carolyn. Thank you. And then um... if you uh, want to follow, not if you want to follow, but um, <laughs> go to findsaharriuskids.com. You will see a video um, that neck has put out you'll see a video from lou there we have also uploaded all of the kids uh pictures that lou has baby pictures um pictures that we have from um 
Susan, when she uh, just old older pictures, if you recognize them, if you recognize the children, if you've seen the children before, if they were your neighbor, if they went to school, please let us know and um, contact us. And what Caroline says is the gospel. If you know something, say something. Everybody have a good week. We'll be back in about a week or two with another podcast. Lou, thank you. Caroline, thank you. And we thank you for watching us and watching this live uh, version of uh, our podcast. Our best wishes and uh, have a great day.